Amen. So we see here, uh, Exodus chapter 32, verse 11, the Bible says, And Moses besought the Lord his God and said, Lord, why doth thy wrath wax hot against thy people, which thou hast brought forth out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? This is a story the Bible talks about where uh, Moses went up to Mount Sinai and got the Ten Commandments. He came back down, and Joshua heard uh, all the noise and basically said, it sounds like there are the noise of war in the camp. And I uh, come to find out that the children of Israel were dancing around this newly made false god uh, without any clothes on, uh, the Bible says, and uh, the, the immorality and things that, was go that were going on at that time. And the Bible says that Moses got angry. That's where he broke the Ten Commandments and all that. And God basically told Moses, look, take a step back, and I'm going to wipe them out. I'll, I'll start a new, uh, new nation with you. And that's where here we find that Moses besought the Lord. Moses went to God to beseech someone is not to simply say, hey, why don't you not do that? Like he begged, he pleaded with God saying, God, don't do this. Don't kill these people. He goes on. I didn't put the verses on there, but he goes on after this verse to explain, look, how bad will you look? You brought them out of Egypt and you preserved them only to kill them. What are other nations going to say about that? And obviously the Bible says that God repented of the wrath that he was going to uh, going to show. And obviously he or Moses uh, uh, crushed, ground up that golden calf, put it in the water and made the people drink of it. And uh, so they didn't get, if I can say, get away with no punishment. They did have a punishment. Obviously they faced other wrath for that as well but ultimately we see here an entire plague or an entire country spared because of one person once again Moses the Bible says Moses went to God not Joshua not Aaron not this person that person Moses went to God besought the Lord and God preserved Israel because of that Numbers 25-7, we already mentioned. I'm going to re, uh, go back to him right now. Numbers 25-7, we talked last week. And when Phinehas, the son of Eliezer, the son of Aaron, the priest saw it, he rose up from among the congregation and took a javelin in his hand. Once again, we showed last week that Phinehas saw exactly what everybody else at the, the door of the tabernacle saw. No, nobody was blind to it. Everybody saw what was going on. And Phinehas decided, you know what, I'm going to stand up and I'm going to do something. And because he did, the Bible says God stayed that plague. I believe 24,000 people died in the plague all, or, uh, before this point, and God stayed the rest, and nobody else died because of it. But Phinehas had the guts to stand up and say, you know what, this is wrong. It should not be done. And he took care of business. Now, like I said, I'm not condoning necessarily how it was done. Okay, I'm not condoning, you know, somebody's uh, talking badly or something in school and you walk, in, walk up and punch them in the face. Well, that's what Phineas, no, 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 I'm not condoning that. But what I'm saying is having the guts to even stand up and say, you know what, why are you talking like that? You know what, you, you profess to be a Christian and you're, talk, you're talking like that and in turn it's uh, standing up for what we know is right. So we see Moses, we see Phineas. Psalm 106.23, this references back to the story with Moses. The Bible says, therefore, he said unto them that he would destroy them. Had not Moses, his chosen, stood before him in the breach to turn away his wrath, lest he should destroy them. This literally says God is saying, I was going to destroy them, but Moses. You know, we can kind of uh, deduce from the original story in uh, the book of Exodus that, well, God was going to kill him and Moses didn't. God says right here, I was going to destroy them, but Moses stood before me before him in the breach. In other words, Moses stepped up and said, you know what, don't kill him, and pleaded for him. Once again, as we said, one shot. I don't know what your shot's going to be. I don't know what, what your shot's going to entail. Your shot may be difficult. I mentioned this morning in chapel. Sometimes you think, well, well, but they have this opportunity, or this happened, that happened, and I got stuck with this. Or if I can say it this way, this is the hand that life dealt me. Okay, That's not an accident. Your siblings is not an accident. Your parents, it's not an accident. God designed that exactly the way it is, and there's a reason for it. And here, Moses was taking advantage of that. No one else saw a burning bush. 
No one else was called by God to lead Israel out. It was Moses' job. And just like that, God comes to you and says, hey, I got this for you. Are you going to be that one teenager the one sh- with the one shot that takes that one stand? Esther 4.14. For if thou altogether holdest thy peace at this time, then shall their enlargement and deliverance arise to the Jews from another place. But thou and thy father's house shall be destroyed, and who knoweth whether thou art come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Mordecai is telling Esther, look, this is your moment. This is your shot. Every year, March Madness, now obviously we didn't have it last year. Looking forward to it this year, uh, mainly because Duke and Kentucky both won't be in it. Uh, no, just kidding. Uh, Indiana barely gets in. I think there will be 11, an 11 seed. Uh, but, uh, but March Madness every year, and what that the final fi- after the final game is played, they play a song called One Shining Moment. And they play a montage of uh, the history-making shots all throughout the tournament. And honestly, I don't know how many of you girls watch it, but it, it's, a, it's an awesome thing to watch a team, uh, maybe a 15 seed, hang on and hang on playing a two seed, and then at the last minute hit a game-winning shot and beat a, beat a two seed. It's an amazing thing. Now, here's the thing. In a lot of cases, the people who hit the shot, you don't remember their names. You can picture it in your mind. That was their one shining moment. And here we see Esther, Mordecai, literally saying, look, this is your one moment. What are you going to do in your moment? Now, I mentioned before, I might have been actually in an Instagram devotional, um, but your moment is going to come whether you like it or not. Are you going to be ready to stand in your moment? You see, you're preparing now for your moment. Those guys that hit that shot, they didn't all of a sudden, hey, you know what? We need a game-winning shot. Pull that guy off the end of the bench. The guy who brings us water all the time, let him go in and take it. No, it's a guy who had worked and worked and worked and worked. David, when David got ready to go fight Goliath, it wasn't, uh, you know what? I don't like that armor, that sword. Uh, give me a slingshot. That'll be fun. No, it was something that he had perfected. It was a talent that God had given to him, and he had worked on and worked on. You can imagine sitting there with the sheep. I mean, how boring that would be. You sit on a rock, and the sheep eat grass. Finding something to do other than rocking out on your harp. Okay, no, I'm just kidding. Uh, but but sitting there with with his uh, with his so you know what there there's a big rock picking up rocks and learning to perfect that sling. So then when it came time and his big moment came, he was able to defeat Goliath. You think well well when my moment comes I'll be ready. Will you? Will you be ready? Because if you're planning on your ability and your strength, guess what? You're gonna fall. You're gonna get beaten to a pulp. Be like the Hulk when the Hulk takes Loki and wham, wham, wham. We laugh about it, but that's what the devil wants to do to you. He wants to sift you as wheat. Are you going to be ready? And here we see Esther. Esther, uh, the whole book of Esther, I thought, or I was telling the seventh grade, it's a, a funny thing that, that God's not mentioned in the book of Esther. This is an interesting thing to think about. It's, he's not. But we see God working through the entire book. And we see here Esther, Esther at the point of, well, what, what about this? And I, even as the queen, I can't go in and talk to the queen or talk to the king. And Mordecai is saying, you know what? This might be the reason that you exist. This may be the reason to preserve God's people. Now, you'll notice halfway through the verse, he says, uh, for if thou altogether, altogether holdest thy peace at this time, he says, look, if you don't say anything, then shall their enlargement and deliverance arise to the Jews from another place. In other words, God will preserve if it's by you, great. If not, he'll find another way to do it. 
that doesn't give us a pass to say, well, you know what? Somebody else will take care of it. But it's understanding that God, in this case, God was going to preserve his people, and God will have his will accomplished. He will accomplish it, whether it be through you or it be through somebody else, or it be through, God forbid, some sort of tragedy um, where we get to the point where we have to. There's a story about an athlete. I can't remember the guy's name now. Um, uh, played for the New York Jets back in the 80s. Dennis Bird. Dennis Bird was a, a football player, uh, played linebacker for the um, New York Jets, and uh, he went in for a tackle, and just how sometimes it happens, he broke uh, broke his neck, and it didn't kill him, but broke his neck where it severed it, or it uh, impacted his spinal cord where he's paralyzed for, for life, basically. He just died a couple years ago now. Um, but he, in his biography, one of, or autobiography, one of the things he said, well, technically not, auto, not an autobiography because he couldn't move his hands. That's terrible. I shouldn't say that. But it would have been a, I guess he said it, so it would be an autobiography still, even if he was one. Uh, anyway, so he, he's laying there, and he, in the book he says that there was a time he, he knew, not necessarily God calling him to full-time service, but he knew he was rejecting that God was working on him. And he said, God got me to the point where the only place I could look was straight up at him. He said, as I lay in that bed, I couldn't move my arms, couldn't move my legs, and God got me to that point. And once again, I'm not saying that God takes everybody to that point, but God will get your attention. He wants your attention. He'll get it one way or another. And here Esther, Mordecai comes and says, look, God will take care of it one way or the other. He wants to use you to it, you to do it, and that may be why you exist. You may be here for this one moment or this one shot. First Samuel, or sorry, 2 Samuel 23, 8. I just noticed this the other day. I never saw it before. I would have used it previously. Um, 2 Samuel 23, 8. We, or in 2 Samuel 23, we find the list of David's mighty men. Okay, how many mighty men did David have? Ooh, close, 37. Um, he had 37 mighty men. Now, we only find feats by, I think, four, maybe five of them. The rest are just listed by name. It's, it gives their name and gives maybe their father's name or their, uh, the tribe uh, of Israel that they're from. But we find his mighty men. Okay, one of his mighty men, the last one mentioned, number 37, was Uriah the Hittite. He was still listed in there. And obviously, God, God gave Samuel the words to write. He was still listed in there. So that it wasn't just some random soldier. It was one of his mighty men. Now, an ironic thing, and this is completely not the direction I want to go, but I just want to mention it. Where did David get his original, not, not his army as king, but his original men that would have turned into his mighty men? You remember? What? Go ahead. You were all confident, then all of a sudden everybody focused on you. Very good. Right. Back when Saul was chasing him, the Bible says that David went and hid in the cave, and I think it was around 400 men came to his way, and the Bible described them as debtors, as prisoners, as what we consider the, rec or the refuse of society. Those are the men that God took and turned into David's mighty men. Your past, and if I can say it this way, your past doesn't matter. Well, but what about this? What about that? You can't change it. I can't change my past. But all you can do is say, you know what? From here on out, this is what it's going to be. This is where we're going to go and allow God to do something great through you. And that's what these mighty men did. But anyway, so we'll look at a couple of these here. It says, these be the names. Apparently, they're pirates. These be the names of the mighty men who David had. The Tachmanite that sat in the seat, chief among the captains. The same was Adino. Uh, the Esnite. He lift up his spear against 800, whom he slew at one time. Now, watch this. After him was Eliezer, the son of Dodo, the Ahoite. I imagine he was probably picked on a lot as a kid because his dad's name was Dodo. Um, but one of the three mighty men with David when they defied the Philistines that were gathered together to battle. Now, lo look at this. Okay, the Philistines gathered together to battle, and the men of Israel were gone away. In other words, the Philistines gathered, all right, you want to fight? Let's fight. And they were gone. I told you, um, might have been the seventh grade. 
uh, I told I have told most of you this story before, but I'm gonna use it again. Um, when my wife and I were first married, we were we stopped at the store uh, on the way home from somewhere to get milk, and I was walking through the aisle and I had a milk jug and I would throw it up like this and I'd catch it, and I'd throw it up like this and catch it. Obviously, young husband impressing my my new wife and throwing it up like this and I threw it up like this and I turned and she said something and I went like this and missed and it hit the ground and milk went everywhere i mean covered head to toe with milk now you think that's a tragic situation my first opportunity to go through a tragedy with my new wife and she was already three aisles over by the time i realized that she was gone because she didn't want to be around the guy who had milk dripping from his eyebrows uh so then i went to one of the workers hey i, I think there's some milk spilled in uh, an aisle three and one of they're looking to be like wait uh anyway all that to say that she deserted me in my time of need um, here, the Bible says that the Philistines were gathered, shh, the Philistines were gathered to battle and the men of Israel were gone away. They had disappeared kind of along the lines of, uh, Phineas. The people were at the tabernacle and they saw this going on, but nobody would do anything. Same thing here. You know what? Yeah, let's fight. Let's fight. Let's fight. And the men of Israel were gone except for this one here. And obviously the one we just talked about, but Eliezer, the Bible says here, uh, the men of Israel were gone away. Now watch what happens. He arose and smote the Philistines until his hand was weary and his hand clave unto the sword and the Lord wrought a great victory that day and the people returned after him only to spoil. In other words, Eliezer stepped up and said, you know what, if nobody else is going to fight, I'm going to fight. Now, I don't know what these men looked like. Okay, uh, I've heard before some people, uh, a lot of times when you see pictures in storybooks and things of Samson, he's a big old guy with big, big muscles. You think, oh yeah, there's, I personally don't think he looked like that. I think he looked like a normal everyday guy. No, because to me, if he had the giant muscles, it'd be easy to say, oh yeah, it's the giant muscles. I think he looked like a normal guy, but when the Bible says when God came upon him, he was as strong as he was. And I think the same thing here. I don't know that these guys were big, burly. I think they were just guys that said, you know what? It needs to be done, and I'm going to take care of it. You know, like I said, if we sit around and wait for the right person to do it, it may never get done. So somebody has to step up and do it, and that's what Eliezer said. Look, you know what? I'm, it wasn't like, you know what? I'm a mighty man. Let me go do it. No, he was called a mighty man after he did this, after he stepped up. Everybody else ran. Everybody else deserted. He stepped up and said, you know what? Somebody needs to take care of it. I'm going to do it. He took advantage of the one shot that he had. The next man after him was Shammah, the son of oh, Agi, the Hararite. Uh, and the Philistines were gathered together once again into a troop, and there was a piece of ground full of lentils. And the people fled from the Philistines. Same thing once again. You understand, like I said, the mighty men were made because they stood. It wasn't, I want to be a mighty man. The mighty man, or the, the men stepped up and said, you know what? Nobody else is going to do anything like Phineas, like Moses, like Noah, like whoever you want to talk about. Nobody else is going to stand up and do something, so I'm going to do it. And now they're in the list, this list of mighty men. Why? The last one, because the people, were, uh, the people were gone away. In this case, the Bible says that they fled in fear from the Philistines, but they were willing to step up and say, you know what, this is what's right. I, I, don't, I, I, don't, I like beans, not enough to fight over them, but apparently the field of lentils was a big deal uh, to Shammah. And so Shammah fought after the people fled from the Philistines, and the Bible says he was or given a great victory. The Bible says, but he stood in the midst of the ground and defended it and slew the Philistines, and the Lord wrought a great victory. I believe in First, first Chronicles, I believe it uh, talks about this story a little more. I want to say it was around 800, I think, Philistines that he killed. Okay, So once again, we're not talking about, oh, yeah, he beat four or five guys. Like He was a legit, uh, it was a legit fight, fought 800 and killed 800. 
Once again, simply because he stood when everybody else fled. In Isaiah 59, 16, the Bible says, And he saw that there was no man, let's talk about God now, and wondered that there was no intercessor. Therefore his arm brought salvation unto him and his righteousness. It sustained him. This is God, once again, God's saying, look, I don't, I'm looking for this and I can't find the one I'm looking for. The continuing on, that's what I was looking for before I got, uh, before I moved that slide. Along with the, the other mighty men, there was one I did want to bring up, a man named Beniah. Beniah, the Bible says a little bit later, uh, it says uh, he was not part of those original three. So his feats were not good enough to be that. But this is what he did. The Bible says in Beniah, the son of Jehoiada, Jehoiada was uh, a priest, uh, the son of a valiant man uh, of Kabziel, Kabziel, who had done many acts. He slew two lion-like men of Moab. He went down also and slew a lion in the midst of a pit in time of snow. He slew an Egyptian, a goodly man, a very large man, not a good man, but a, a very large man. And the Egyptian had a spear in his hand, but he went down to him with a staff and plucked the spear out of the Egyptian's hand and slew him with his own spear. Jobs that nobody else wanted to do, okay? I'm not going to fight a lion, okay, because I know how that's going to turn out. The Bible says he went down, fought a lion in a pit on a snowy day. Odds were stacked against him, but he said it needs to be done, and he did it. The same thing with the, the, the large Egyptian man. Nobody else will do it. I'll get it done. And we find him here in the list of mighty men. You see, like I said, you, we want, you know what? Well, I, I want to be that mighty man, okay? Then it's going to take an opportunity where you just stand. It doesn't matter who, like we sang in the song or a couple weeks ago, though none go with me, still I'll follow. Why? Because I'm going to stand regardless of what anybody else does or anybody else says. It's a conscious choice. It's a conscious effort we make. And here Isaiah is saying, look, he, or God's looking around. He was looking for a man, wondered. There was nobody, an intercessor, somebody who comes and pleads on behalf of someone else. And he said, there's nobody. Nobody to do it. He says, therefore, his, or his arm brought salvation unto him, and his righteousness, it sustained him. Isaiah 63, 5, along the same lines, and I looked, and there was none to help. And I wondered that there was none to uphold. Therefore, mine own arm brought salvation unto me, and my fury, it upheld me. Once again, he looked around and found no one. You think back to, in that case, or uh, one, of my, one of my particular favorite parts of history are things like the Medal of Honor. Then you think of the Medal of Honor. The Medal of Honor can be won by anybody. If we went into a battle as an army, any one of us could win the Medal of Honor. But I want, I want to say I think around only 6,000 have been awarded out of the 1.5, 2 million or so soldiers that have ever served in the United States military from the Continental Army on. Only 6,000 have been awarded. Why? Because only 6,000 stepped up and performed that feat. Now, there are a lot of intricate details that go into the Medal of Honor. You have to have two other eyewitnesses beside yourself that, to prove that it happened. And there are sometimes things will happen in World War II, and they'll investigate and investigate, and all of a sudden then 50, 60 years later, they finally award the medal because they found somebody who verified what happened. Amazing stories. You look, you think, I wish I could do that. Okay? We're not all cut out that way. Spiritually speaking, we should be. The Bible says with uh, Peter and John that the Pharisees or the, the religious leaders marveled at Peter and John. They said they were unlearned and ignorant okay, in regards to the law. I don't think they were stupid, but they were unlearned and ignorant. They marveled, though, because they had been with Jesus. You see, standing spiritually is not, it, it will be physical in nature, but it's spiritual 
at heart. Being willing to say, you know what, that's not right. I shouldn't be doing that, and I'm not going to allow myself to do that. So-and-so, now once again, it's not a public thing. So-and-so did this, and they shouldn't have. No, because now you just look like an idiot. But it's standing up and saying, you know what, that's wrong. We shouldn't be doing that. Well, what if they laugh at me? Okay. I don't know if they laughed at um, Eliezer or not. But once Eliezer had the victory, guess what? Everybody came back into spoil. Everybody benefited. Why? Because one, st- one man stood up. One man did what should have been done. People thought David was a fool as he ran out to meet Goliath. He didn't walk, didn't cower. The Bible says he ran to meet Goliath. But as soon as he cut off his head and held that head up, everybody ran in. Yeah, we got this now. Why? Because one person stood up. And that's here what, what uh, God is saying through Isaiah. He says, uh, he says, and I looked, there was none to help. Uh, He says, and I looked, and there was none to help, and I wondered that there was none to uphold. There was nobody looking looking for somebody, looking for somebody that could do what needed to be done, and he says, I couldn't find anybody. Here's my main verse, the main text verse. If you, oh, I'm sorry, nope, not yet. That's the next one. I forgot I added this one earlier. Romans 3.11 says, there is none that understandeth, there is none that seeketh after God. As I said before, spiritually speaking, I can't do it on my own, and you can't do it on your own. Spiritually speaking, you care too much about what other people think, and that's human nature. It's not right, but that's human nature. It takes you spending time with God and God saying, as you go through life, you know what? You shouldn't be doing that and this and this. That's what gives you the strength to stand, the boldness to stand. That's what I said earlier with Peter and John. The Bible says they marveled at their boldness. Why? Because they had been with Jesus. You, You want that strength? You want that boldness? Then you have to spend time with him. You think, why is nobody standing? Well, maybe because nobody's in this book. Plain and simple. You find yourself floating along with the crowd, and whatever the crowd does, I'll I'll follow along. There are some in here. uh, Let me look around for a second. As I look around the room, some of you are natural followers. That's not necessarily wrong. It's just how you were designed. Some of you are natural leaders. Number one to the leaders, what direction are you leading? Well, I don't want to be a leader. Don't matter. I've told you before, there's a kid in Michigan. He's miles off the deep end now, but there's a kid when I was in Michigan um, that I sat down with in the office. And uh, he was uh, not necessarily doing involved in anything wicked, but you could start seeing the pattern, where the direction he was going. Um, Dad had deserted him long before, uh, long before we had ever even moved to Michigan. And I sat down with him in the office one day, and I called his name, and I said, look, you understand. And I named some other kids in school, and I said, those kids are following you. He says, I, I don't want them to follow me. And I said, I called his name again. I said, look, it doesn't matter what you, whether you want them to follow you. you don't, as a leader, you don't stand up and say, hey, follow me. You just go, and people follow behind you. And I said, that's where you're at. What direction do you want them to go? I don't want them to follow me. And we went back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And like I said, I know where he's at. I, like I said, I know where he's at today. But ultimately, you're all leading someone. Some of, some of you are leading groups. Some of you may only be leading one person. But where are you leading them? Second of all, to the followers. Be very careful who you follow. As I said to the seventh grade over and over and over and over and over, you are what influences you. Okay? 
Why do you struggle with maybe an attitude? Why do you struggle with relationships with parents or struggle with this and that? Because of what is influencing. You can only be influenced one of two ways, your eyes or your ears. That's it. So how are you being influenced? What are you letting influence you? Because the problems and the issues you have are a direct result of what you're allowing to influence you. And so as a follower, you have to be very careful. Even as a leader, you have to be very careful of the things that you allow to influence you, the type of music, the things you watch, the things you look at, the things you search for on social media, the people you follow, the people you uh, watch Snapchat and, or Snaps from and TikToks from, the thing, all those stuff, you have to be very, very careful. Why? Because you're constantly being influenced. Um, I was telling the seventh grade, uh, oh, I forget what day it was. Uh, it had to been Monday because uh, uh, Friday, my wife and I finally had a chance to go out for uh, Valentine's Day. And uh, so we went out for Valentine's Day, and I was telling them that uh, I, and I've told you guys before, from my uh, freshman year through my junior year of college, I struggled with music. Music was a constant battle uh, just with different types of music and all that kind of stuff. But we're sitting there in the in the restaurant, sitting there eating, and I told uh, I was telling the seventh graders that uh, music came on, a song came on, and I heard about the first three notes, and I knew what song it was, and I could sing it word for word. That was 17 years ago since I heard that song last. And you've heard people say, well, you know what, when you look at the wrong images, it's burned on your mind, and I agree with that. But I'm almost to the point now where I think music is worse because you'll never get those lyrics out. And regardless of what type of music it is, and this is the direction you asked the seventh graders, the bell rang right as I was getting ready to head into it, and I wrote down a note, but I said, if it, I'm not going to force it, uh, so it just I didn't go back to it. But regardless of the type of music, I don't listen to that type of music. Okay, if your music's not honoring and, glori honoring and glorifying to God, it's l influencing you the wrong direction. And I'll be happy. To, I mean, well, I don't agree with that. That's fine. I'll sit down and discuss it with you anytime. But I can give you biblical proof. I can give you real-life instances of how those influences happen. You wonder, well, why am I angry about this? Why am I angry th about that? I used the example before with... Um, uh, uh, when I was um, the girl I dated my uh, freshman year of college, when we broke up, I jumped in my or jumped in my car and was driving, and I turned the music up as loud as I I could. It wasn't victory in Jesus. I turned up really loud. Why? Because I wanted to try to drown out everything else that was going on. But that music only made me more angry. And you think, well, wait, but that's music. People say, well, no, music's all moral. It doesn't have any more. No, oh, it does. It's influencing you one way or the other. That's why it's so important, the things you allow to influence you, that they glorify and honor God. Why? Because you will be what influences you. It's a guarantee. Some of you may already be or see yourself going the direction of what you've allowed to influence you. Where do you get your influences? I see um, uh, Brother Molinar used the example, and I'm not putting myself in the same <laughs> age bracket as Brother Molinar. But uh, when I was a kid, um, the, our Gatorade commercial, Be Like Mike, and I would sing the song for you, but my voice is going, so I can't do it right now. Um, but uh, the song and the whole thing was be like my it was Michael Jordan. It would show him doing uh, move on the court, and it would show a little kid in the park doing the same thing. And the whole push was be like Mike. Who do you want to be like? What do you want to be like? Because what you're letting influence you right now is what you're going to become. And here, the Bible says in Romans that Paul says, "Look, there's none that seeketh after God." Do you seek after God? What do you seek? When you wake up in the morning, does your, do you even think to open your Bible? Or is it straight to TikTok? 
or is it straight to to face? Oh, I guess Facebook's a little old for you guys. All right, where's uh, Lily? Or straight to Twitter um, for those uh, old at heart people in here? Um, or is it straight to whatever, whatever social media it is? And that's th- immediately what you're letting influence you, rather than you know what I'm gonna let God have the primary influence in my life. That's a choice, and that's why Paul says here, "There is none that seeketh after God." Now is the verse I wanted to get to. Ezekiel chapter 22, 30 then. The Bible says that I sought for a man among them that should make up the hedge and stand in the gap before me for the land that I should not destroy it. But I found none. God says I I was looking for one. I was looking for one person that would be able to stand up and make up the hedge would be something of uh, whether you want to think of protection or, or guidance, whatever the case may be. A hedge is just a really a, a, a nicely trimmed bush, for lack of a better way to put it. And you think sometimes we look at things like that, we look at it in a negative way. Well, why can't I go on the other side of the hedge? Well, maybe it's there to protect you and keep you in, or maybe it's there to keep other things from getting in to get you, whatever the case may be. Our, um, the animal we have at our house that my wife calls a dog. Um, he, he hasn't gotten out in a, <laughs> he hasn't gotten out in a while, but there was a time where he was, he was squeezing out, uh, when he was, well, he was still losing weight at this point cause he was still pretty fat. He had to squeeze through, uh, but he'd squeeze through the bottom of the fence and, uh, he would take off. We have a, a, a um, four wheeler trail behind our house and he would take off and you'd hear him barking way off in the distance. So we're obviously out searching for him. My wife's searching much harder than I am. I'm kind of hoping, you know what, <laughs> let some bigger animal have gotten him. Um, but searching and searching and searching. Well, one time, or as if you go down that trail, there's a fence, uh, the people, they live behind us, but it's probably, probably four or five doors down, but there's a chain link fence and two pits that live in that yard. And I can imagine, I've never seen him do it, but obviously hearing him bark, I can imagine him going to that fence and bark, 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 bark. He doesn't realize that that fence is preserving his life. Because if that pit got over that fence or through that fence, it'd be one snap and bears. I'm just being honest with you. And sometimes, listen, listen, that's what we do. We go out and chase, chase, chase. We want the world, we want the world. And you don't realize that the fences and the guidelines and the wires and the things that your parents have put up for you are there to protect you, yet you fight against them. Well, Mom, why this? Why that? Later, when you hit my age and you hit senior citizens, I'm kidding. When you, when you hit my age, you begin to look back and think, you know what? That's why that fence was there. So I would be protected. I, I saw it as something trying to hold me in, but it's actually my parents trying to keep something out. So don't fight those things. Your parents have put those up in love. They don't sit down and think, you know what, all right, how can we make so-and-so's life miserable? All right, let's make this rule or that rule. No, no, no. Rules are made to help protect you. Don't fight that. And that's here. Or once again, a hedge is that, that, uh, that fence, if you will. And then he says, and stand in the gap for me before the land. In other words, what he's saying is, look, somebody who would come to me and plead, we use the word intercessory a couple verses ago, somebody that's going to come and beg and plead for the land here. But he says, I found none. The Bible says that God is seeking regularly. We started by saying one shot. We all have one shot at this life. What are you going to do with your shot? At least get a shot up. You think of it a basketball connotation. You're trying to run the clock down and at least get a decent shot. Make it count. Then we said one teenager. 
thankfully, and once again, I'm not saying this as a, a way for us to let up, but I feel that as a youth group, I feel we're headed the right direction. Sometimes we'll stray and straggle, and obviously things like next week's youth rally are things to help kind of give us a shot in the arm to, to continue where we need to go. But sometimes you may feel like you're the only one. One teenager, David, stood. And as a result, God preserved Israel, and everybody jumped in behind him. But it took that one teenager. We said one stand, Phineas. Phineas said, you know what? I don't care what everybody else does. I know you see what's going on. I see what's going on. God sees what's going on. I'm going to go take care of it. I'm going to address what's going on. And he went to battle for it. And God preserved Israel for that. Ezekiel said he is seeking for one. That's what he's seeking for. Are you that one? You see, because it boils down to you. He's already said he's looking for it. Are you willing to be used? Are you ready to be used? I don't remember if it was here or when we were in Michigan, and obviously the guys would remind me uh, if it was here. But I remember coaching in a game, and I think somebody fouled out. It was a close game. Somebody fouled out, and I remember looking down the bench and saying, hey, uh, so-and-so go in, and the person on the the bench that I called said, no, I don't want to go in. They were scared of what was going to happen in the game. They were scared to be the one that may lose or uh, that would make the turnover to lose, whatever the case may be, and they literally rejected the one shot that they had. The coach was looking for someone. I said, no, 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 I don't want any part of that. I don't know where you're at, where your heart is. I don't, I don't know if God's already come to you as the one. Now, here's the thing. It's not that there's only one out of all of you. But if you take a group this size, even just in the city of Mobile, it seems pretty small. And you may be the only one, you juniors and seniors, as you head off to college, you head off into the workforce, you may be the only one at your job. You may be the only one in your college. I don't know. But Ezekiel says God's seeking for one. You got one shot at this life. I don't know when your shot's going to end. Will you be the one teenager that takes the one stand? Because God is seeking for you. 